Good morning, Hillsdale, Michigan, and to all our listeners coming to us from around the country. You're listening to American View, where Hillsdale meets the nation. I'm Ben Dietrich, your host. And with me in the studio today is Andrew Nell, our producer. And over the phone right now, calling from Washington, D.C., is Henry Olson. He is a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and is also a columnist for The Washington Post. He's been on the show several times. We always appreciate his insight. Um, he made some good predictions last year in the 2018 midterm election, and uh, he always seems to have a good grasp of where the American people stand on a lot of issues. Uh, Mr. Olson, thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. So I want to talk about the Democratic debate that happened yesterday, but first I still want to talk a little bit about impeachment, so let's start there. Um, is the impeachment hearings right now, from where they stand, do you think they are helping or harming the Democrats and vice versa, the Republicans? I don't think they're making very much difference, that people are so baked in their opinions. Uh, we're not learning anything new uh, from the hearings, uh, by and large. Most of the substantive information had been leaked uh, by uh, the Democrats uh, based on the private depositions that the witnesses had been giving. And so far, uh, I think it's just, uh, from public opinion standpoint, um, not moving the needle. So recently, one of the things you tweeted out, and we've seen this among Rasmussen and other um, polls, I believe Gallup as well, the president's approval rating has ticked up a couple of notches from where it, when it had initially dropped, it looks like, at the beginning of these impeachment hearings. Do you think that's significant at all then, or not really? Well, I, I, I think Gallup uh, is in line with what the averages are, which is that between uh, September 24th, when Speaker Pelosi announced that she was uh, throwing her weight behind impeachment, uh, to about uh, middle of October, uh, the president's approval ratings dropped over three points. Uh, but since that point, uh, they've been on the upswing, and they now stand uh, at a little over 44%. So I think what you're seeing is uh, initial shock, um, initial movement, and uh, recovery uh, by people who uh, generally have some sort of support for the president. And that's a pattern of going all the way back to the campaign that when news drops uh, that is unfavorable to the president, uh, the American viewpoint uh, or the um, the, the the tape, I forget the program now, the Billy Bush tape, mm -hmm. uh, going back to 2016. Um, it's very common for the president's support to drop and then pick back up relatively quickly. Uh, and that's what we're seeing right now is uh, there are people who like him uh, or like the job he's doing or are uncomfortable with him. And when they get bad news, they move off of the president. And when they digest it, they move back on. Do you think that's uh, in part because the Democrats kind of overplay their cards, so to speak? Um, I think the Democrats in this hearing um, and throughout the Trump presidency have been unwilling to uh, make any sort of compromises to soft Republican or soft Trump supporter opinion. They have not presented any sort of nuance in their criticisms. They have not uh, presented any sort of balanced uh, view of the president. It's been 24-7, 365 um, attack. And I think what that does is drive people who have 
some mixed or nuanced viewpoints uh, back to the president, as mm-hmm. opposed to try, as opposed to bringing them over, and they have not learned from their playbook. They uh, are the definition of. They say, "What is the definition of insanity? It's doing the same thing over and expecting a different result." Uh, well, by that definition, they are insane because they do the same thing over and over again. They wonder, or their allies in the liberal media wonder. Well, when are the Republicans going to break? Well, they're not going to break as long as you keep doing the same thing that has proven unpersuasive to Republicans or at least soft Trump supporters in the past. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about um, the way the Democrats have been, you know, playing their hands to the Republicans when or there to the president when we get to the Democratic debate. Uh, you know, last night you released an article on The Washington Post online. I'm guessing it was in the paper this morning. Um, titled, Republicans won't impeach Trump, but they should punish him. So in this column, um, you make the case, you basically, it seems as though you admit that what the president did was wrong with regards to the way he held up aid um, to Ukraine, but that it was not going to be enough for the Republicans to impeach the president. Um, the Washington Post this morning, an editorial board a- editorial, uh, came out with a similar argument basically saying that the offenses the president had committed at this point seem to be unimpeachable. Um, they don't go as far as you to say that they should, that the president should be censored by Republicans. But uh, I think they bring up a good point in the article, and I want to ask you about that. They make the point that um, the president, uh, the fact that everybody seems to, who was involved in, in foreign policy, whether they came from the State Department, whether they were ambassadors or even lower-level officials, seemed to know what was happening this wasn't very much a, a secret hidden operation and um, that combined with the fact that they ultimately did get the aid um, really makes this seem like it was not um, as big of a deal as Democrats are making it out to be. You say it was still bad. I'm curious. Uh, why do you think that? Well, let's just uh, what I do in my piece is I distinguish between the aid and the initial request for the investigation that I'm not it's not clear to me that the aid was held up for uh, for political reasons, which is the Democrats are saying that there was, but you know, Investor Sumlin yesterday was very, very clear uh, that uh, he did not, you know, he was never told that, and he didn't. He put made some conclusions based on things, but that he didn't have direct evidence about that. My argument is that even the initial request to investigate the president uh, or investigate Joe Biden was uh, an abuse of power that you should not be using public power for private gain. And it would have been one thing for Trump to say, hey, you know, we're actually investigating this. Can you guys uh, please cooperate with Attorney General Barr? Because it may have very well have been that U.S. laws were broken by um, uh, Hunter Biden or by Democratic uh, campaign operatives in 2016. And it's entirely appropriate to say, hey, we're looking into a legal violation on our side. Can you guys please not hinder that? Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, to straight out say to a country that's dependent on American military aid, can you do me a favor? Is just not right. Um, so that's the argument that I was making. And I think Republicans need not to ignore that. They need not to stand by because... You don't want to be in a situation where you've de facto condoned it, and then the next time uh, somebody gets tempted with that, they go even further. And the example I give in my op-ed is imagine if uh, somebody goes to Israel and say, 
uh, hey, can you please use your security services to conduct the sorts of investigations that we, into our political opponents, that uh, we can't use the CIA and FBI for? Well, you know, the Israelis might very well say no, but they depend on over four billion or three over three billion dollars in military aid. They might very well say yes, and you start to have a slippery slope of uh, of corruption uh, that is unhealthy for a democracy. Now, now, President Trump um, and his rise to power has been kind of defined by the idea, though, that. Uh, the dirty tricks, for instance, that the Democrats have played or the, the way in which they play in politics, the president has kind of played the exact same way, been much more clear and obvious about it, been clear about his own self-interests, um, been clear about his own positions on, on, in that sense. And, you know, his argument, of course, is that when you look at what the Obama administration did and the way they treated him and the way that they sought uh, or possibly sought, we don't know that for sure, but sought information from foreign governments to um, – you know, initiate a wiretapping on the pres- members of the president's campaign, that that was just as bad. Does that change um, what the president did here? I mean, at the very least, it's got to impact the perceptions of the American people. We're told by Lindsey Graham, right, that this FISA report should be coming out pretty soon. Well, that's why I think I think it's entirely proper that uh, you have an, the inspector general's report is entirely proper. Uh, Attorney General Barr's legal probe is entirely proper. I support those things. What's improper is uh, not, what those are is using public resources to examine whether or not they're a violation of public laws. That's proper. That's not what the president did with the Ukraine. Hmm. And and so, Do you think, though, that this – so if this ends up being like you said, because one of the things you started when explaining this was the the point that, you know, this might not have been the central thing for the reason the aid was was held up. And that's kind of the argument that Mick Mulvaney, the chief of staff, made a couple weeks ago when he got flustered and kind of admitted that there was a quid pro quo but didn't specifically say what the reasons were for the quid quid pro quo. Um, So, you know, if this was not a central thing, if it was something that came up in a conversation a couple of times, upset a lot of the career State Department officials, then does this really end up being, I mean, you you say, you know, it has the potential to be a bad thing. But, I mean, if this was really about the corruption that that Ukraine was already, because it it is obviously clear that the Ukrainian government prior to this administration there, you know, did have big issues of corruption. There there could have been good reasons to hold up the aid. Um, You know, does that change how the Republicans should react? Well, again, I, I distinguish between the holding up the aid, which I do not think the Democrats have proven was a uh, was done to uh, uh, leverage or pressure an investigation on behalf of the Ukrainians, and the simple request of "Can you do me a favor?" Those are two different things. I, you know, let's take the military aid out of it because I don't think that that has been proven to have been improperly withheld. Mm-hmm. Let's just focus on the thing that everyone, even you know, uh, even President Trump says, I asked President Zelensky to enter uh, to do a to conduct a Ukrainian investigation into the activities of Joe and Hunter Biden specifically and the Democratic Party specifically into the 2016 election. I think that was improper. Right. I think that was wrong. I don't think the Republicans will impeach, and certainly under the totality of the circumstances where we're in the 
you know, we've basically been undergoing four years of bitter political warfare. I don't think the Senate should be the ultimate judge in the trial. I think the American people should be judged. Mm -hmm. So I do not favor impeachment. I do not favor removal. But what the president did was wrong, and I don't think we should condone that example, because if we condone that example, we will not have any lower leg to stand on if our adversaries, who do fight that way, uh, take it up a step, uh, a notch, and decide that this is now part of normal political activity. Well, we appreciate that. Use the legal investigations that are already underway to take a look and see, were U.S. laws broken by Obama administration officials and Democratic Party operatives in the 2016 campaign? And let that go, because those investigations will have to go before a federal judge and go through the federal court system. It won't be a case of using... Uh, of trying to unearth information that then becomes um, mm. uncertain. Uh, what you'll do is you'll go through independent entities, the judicial system, you'll have to prove your case. If laws were broken and bad things were done, those things are going to be tested in a very trustworthy setting. And I think the president should have limited his efforts to uh, authorizing those and not done what he did with President Zelensky. Well, for those of you just joining us now, you're listening to Henry Olson. He is a columnist for The Washington Post and a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. So I want to move this uh, line of questioning now more towards the, the presidential election coming up in 2020, Democratic debate that happened last night. Um, and the last question that uh, relates to impeachment as we transition into that, in- independent voters, obviously people that could, you know, swing voters, people that could potentially vote for a Democrat or a Republican, um, do you think that this issue of impeachment right now is going to dissuade the the majority of those from voting for President Trump? Um, and, you know, how does what we have been seeing from the Democrats impact that? You know, right now I'm seeing a couple of things in the polls. One is that there's not a whole lot of movement going on. Uh, but two, there's a growing body of evidence that says areas in the country that are purple, that are swing areas, are opposed to impeachment and removal. So that a minimum means that the Democrats have not made their case. There's a poll that came out yesterday uh, in Wisconsin that showed uh, um, a majority of people think that the president did something wrong, but a majority of the people also do not think that he should be removed and impeached. And that poll also showed the president leading all potential Democrats, including Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. It's just one poll. It's just one state. But I think that should be something that if other polls show that will should scare the Democrats a whole lot, because the movement uh, from the last poll by the same pollster in Wisconsin has all been in Trump's direction. Now, you mentioned earlier on in this interview that, you know, the Democrats really haven't seemed to be able to appeal to kind of the softer Trump voters, not the, you know, the super hardcore Trump base voters. Last night at the Democratic debate, we saw them all kind of aim most of their attacks on the president. A lot of people were hoping that there would be some, you know, actual debate or inner debate attacks between the various candidates. But for the most part, people have agreed, as Reuters put it this morning, that uh, really this was, you know, um, an agreement of many issues by these candidates and that we saw most of the attacks point at the president. Um, what do you think about that? What, what do you think that last night revealed about the state 
of the Democratic primary? Um, I think uh, after the last few debates uh, that uh, the Democrats uh, decided that uh, it wasn't time to be attacking everyone else. Uh, there is no clear front runner. Mm-hmm. Unlike uh, the debate prior to that where Elizabeth Warren was surging and there was a fear she might become uh, the clear front runner, um, I think the Democratic Party has some disagreements and they were slightly on display last night, but it's really a question between go fast and go slow progressivism that the so-called moderates are go slow progressives. You know, Biden and Klobuchar and Booker has now returned to his uh his roots of being a go slow progressive and the uh, all speed ahead progressives, Sanders and Warren. Um, and I think they, see, they, they, since none of them see clear advantage to attacking, uh, those differences were muted. But that's going to rise again. Like the closer you get to election day, the more these candidates are going to have to distinguish themselves. And you can only go so far with positive. At some point, you have to create a contrast. Say, you don't want this, you do want this. And I expect in December that they will be more attacks. Right. Now, um, if you had to pick a candidate today, who would you say it's going to be that's going to be facing up against President Trump? Well, you know, if you have to pick one candidate, um, you'd have to pick Biden in the sense that he still leads the field. Uh, he still has strong support among black uh, voters, and they traditionally back the winner in Democratic Party primaries. But boy, does he look weak. Yeah. Well, you wrote about that's why considerably about that's why I look at the. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say you've written considerably about Amy Klobuchar, and it seems to suggest that you think that she could be a stronger candidate if she were to get past the primaries. Is that correct? Oh, I think that I think she would be the strongest candidate the Democrats could put up because I think she does, uh, and you saw it on display last night, where she was the only candidate who could who continually said uh, uh, that that she works with and has won votes from independents, you know, blue states, purple states, uh, deep red counties in Minnesota. Um, she's making the play, and I think she has a good record to run on, that she can talk to those soft Trump supporters. And she can also hold the soft Trump opponents, the sort of people who don't like Trump but don't like socialism. Right. And last and, um, and I think she had a strong debate last night. I expect her to move up in the polls. We'll see. I know I've been waiting for her to, to see if she was going to move up as well, and it just doesn't seem like there's been much movement yet. Um, you know, so last question. Nikki Haley, of course, released her book with all due respect uh, in the last couple week. Um, I believe it was last, last week that that book was released. We read some of it here on the air. Um, you raised the good point that I think is very true that we haven't, you know, she seems to be a potential leader for post-Trump GOP. We don't see a lot of specific policies or specific ideas yeah. coming out of her. Um, can you explain or elaborate on what you think those weaknesses are? Yeah, look, um, the person who wants to be the leader of the post-Trump GOP is going to have to address the challenges that President Trump posed. You know, that President Trump did not win the nomination because of his showmanship and his personality. He won the Republican nomination because he was the only person addressing ideas such as uh, the cultural uh, dis- the cultural fight going on in America, which he talked about as political correctness, the battle with Islamic terrorism that other people either sidestepped or were unwilling to address head-on. 
uh, immigration and trade, uh, the changing American role in the world. Uh, and the, Nikki Haley so far has presented herself as basically a loyal, traditional Republican who is also loyal to Trump. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's sufficient for the Trump, post-Trump GOP. You see people like Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley and Tom Cotton who are addressing those issues. And I think that's the sort of thing that Haley has to do. She can't pretend that the, con- the, that the current Republican Party is the pre-Trump GOP plus fealty to this wonderful personality. It's not. There are substantive divisions, and until she addresses those, then I don't think she's going to become what she's clearly aiming to be, which is the next presidential candidate for the GOP. Mm-hmm. Mr. Olson, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We always appreciate you having you on the show here on American View. Well, I love talking to Hillsdale students, and thank you for uh, letting me talk to Hillsdale supporters as well. Absolutely. So that was Henry Olson. You can follow him on Twitter or check out his articles at the Washington Post. He's a senior fellow for the Ethics and Public Policy Center. We've been talking to him this morning about what's been happening in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill with the impeachment hearings, what happened at the Democratic primary debate last night in Atlanta, Georgia. When we get back, we'll discuss more of that and what else has been happening in news across the country. You're listening to American View, where Hillsdale meets the nation. I'm Ben Dietrich. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American View on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. My name is Ben Dietrich. Welcome to the show, folks. Hope you enjoyed the first half. We talked with Henry Olson, a senior fellow at the Ethics of Public Policy Center, as well as a columnist for the Washington Post. you got to respect a guy, right, that can write for the Washington Post, who probably has more, you know, definitely leans conservative. I wouldn't say he's a hardcore Trump supporter or anything like that. He's actually a really good person at predicting where elections go. And he gets to write for the Washington Post. Um, not exactly the most neutral source these days. So good on him for that. They haven't thrown him out yet. So we're going to keep on talking about, you know, I got some great clips to play, play for you guys this morning about the Democratic debate because, you know, nobody wants to watch those things. They're not that entertaining. Um, there's no Donald Trump in it and there's no Hillary Clinton. So what's the point, right? Um, there wasn't a whole lot of excitement either. It was really just them kind of kissing up to each other. So we got some great clips from that. Real quick, though, I want to finish some things on the impeachment story. Some fun facts we didn't get into yet that have come, um, you know, to light this last week. You should probably know about them. So here we go. First off, the Trump campaign has been running an advertisement. And the ad has been all about the fact that the whistleblower has hired a lawyer. And this lawyer has been out and against Trump since the very beginning. Mark Said is his name. He's one of the attorneys representing this this famous whistleblower that started this impeachment inquiry for the Democrats. Um, And he tweeted out in July 2017, just a couple months, just like five, six months after President Trump became president. um, He said, we will get rid of him and this country is strong enough to survive even him and his supporters. Um, He wrote some other tweets as well. 
uh, basically saying that the coup has started and impeachment will follow. Ultimately, he said that in January 2017, directly after the president was elected. Just kind of revealing the nature, the political nature of this whistleblower. You know, the Democrats have, and the New York Times mainstream media have loved to portray the whistleblower as this kind of neutral arbiter, this neutral source that has, you know, been so patriotic in, in defending his country. Um, and we're learning that's not really the case. It seems that a lot of these people that work at the State Department, a lot of these people that work in the bureaucracy of our government, meaning that they are career uh, officials, they are not elected by any people, and they often think they know what's best. And that means they often disagree with those elected, especially when they have an R next to their name, and especially when that person is President Donald J. Trump. So we'll continue to follow that side of the story. Also, one last thing to bring up that, um, you know, we didn't get to talk to you too much with Henry Olson. I thought he did a great job, by the way, breaking down. We got to hear, you know, where this impeachment trial really stands and how it's affecting the American people, because that's what people care about right now is, you know, wh- how is this going to affect the election? And I think from what we learned, we see, you know, this is not being, this is not the, uh, um, exactly what the Democrats, I think, were hoping for at this point, you know, the smoking gun, so to speak. Um, it's seemingly, you know, like they're, having trouble getting this stuff to stick. And part of that is just because, you know, the ex- so-called explosive testimony, I think I see that like every day. You know, I turn on New York Times, Washington Post. It's like, today, you know, so-and-so testified bombshell testimony. Bombshell. You know. Um, <laughs> and I, I, you know, basically, it's just another career politician saying, oh, yeah, the president was politically motivated. So the Washington Post, as we talked about, they, they ran a good article this morning, or excuse me, not the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and they talked about, you know, just basically the fact that, like, it's kind of interesting that all these career people in the State Department, CIA, knew about what was happening. Um, the fact that they understood, or this was not a secret, basically, the policy of the Trump administration. And that says a lot, because, you know, when you look back at the Watergate scandal, I mean, when people kind of did illegal things in our government. Usually you don't make those policies super well known. Um, it seems a lot of people knew about what was happening. Uh, and there was a really important letter that if you get the chance to read, if you're really interested in this stuff, go online, check it out. Um, and this letter was written by uh, Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. He has been following this Ukraine thing from the beginning before there was even a scandal he has been spending a lot of time in Ukraine um, working with their government. And he basically talked about his experiences going to Ukraine, um, you know, and then persuading the president to reinstate aid to Ukraine, to stop the hold on it. He's a Republican, but he seems that in this letter, he kind of details his discussion pretty fairly about what happened. And the most interesting thing he says, though, is that basically the fact that he convinced the president, he says, in a phone call in August to reinstate aid to um, Ukraine. And the president basically said, yeah, after you made your points, I've decided to do that. And he, and he basically mentions that, well, you know, the question of Joe Biden came up in the conversation. The things they really talked about were not that. Um, what they talked about mainly, one thing he quotes is a conversation in which the president um, paraphrased his own conversation with Angela Merkel complaining about how Angela Merkel um, in Germany refused to pay for uh, Ukraine's defenses and how the United States is footing the bill, and that frustrates him. And it kind of sheds light on what we heard from Mick Mulvaney, and he did a very bad job basically espousing earlier on 
And that was the idea that, you know, there were much more at stake than just this small portion of, oh, we're trying to get Joe Biden. If that was a piece in a bigger puzzle, um, and, you know, just one of the many things that President Trump was concerned with, we still don't know how much that is true. But this, this letter kind of sheds light on that. Interesting to follow, see where that goes. Um, and, you know, ultimately, um, the aid, you know, as many pointed out, was reinstated. They got their aid. It was never really held. And, you know, there's a lot of evidence out there to suggest that the Ukrainians weren't even aware <laughs> that there was a quid pro quo attached to investigating Joe Biden. But we'll see where that goes. You know, um, people like Henry Olson, people like the Wall Street Journal have prudently declared this is not an impeachable offense for President Trump. But we will, we will see where this goes. Um, the American people at this point, at least in the swing areas, you know, the areas that were not already squarely against him, don't seem to be supporting it. So we'll follow that story. But now let's get to the fun, you know, exciting 2020 politics here. Presidential politics. I know, I know, the debates are boring, but we got to cover them a little bit and we can poke fun of them. Let's, let's, you know, entertain ourselves by hear Joe Biden talking about how black he is. It is. Number one, everybody gets out, record expunged. Secondly, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm part of that, that Obama coalition. I come out of the black community in terms of my support. If you notice, I have more people supporting me in the black community than announced for me because they know me. They know who I am. Three former chairs of the Black Caucus, the only African-American woman that ever been elected to the United States Senate. A whole range of people. No, my point no, is, that's not true. true. The other that's one is true. here. <laughs> and they call him on. So my point is, to be vice Don't president I? was because of my relationship, long-standing relationship with the black community. I was part of that coalition. Thank you, Kristen. All right, all right. <laughs> if Kamala Harris gets to laugh, I, I should get to laugh too, right? I mean, come on, you you get to laugh too at home. You, you can have a little chuckle at that. I came out of a black community through my support. What? Oh, my gosh. You know, it's always uncomfortable with the, you know, the, the positions that the left takes today. Joe, Joe Biden is not like Bernie Sanders. He has not been, he has not taken the hard line positions from the get-go. He was not out there advocating for bread lines, nor was he advocating for uh, desegregation um, at the proper time, uh, as history has shown it. Um and we see that here with what he says. You know, he tries to act as though he basically is black in some sense because he was the vice president for Barack Obama. If you didn't know it, they're actually featured in a lot of cool new crime novels recently. Um, they, you know, they have their fan club writing books about them. They're besties. The memes are all over the Internet. So I guess that makes him African-American. I don't think people are going to buy that, but hey, you never know. It's support among African Americans uh, is certainly better than Pete Buttigieg's, which seems to be one of his problems. But, uh, you know, gaff after gaff after gaff, reluctantly this morning, in case you missed it, Henry Olson said, yeah, you know, if I had to choose somebody right now, I guess the leader is Joe Biden. <laughs> but look, there, if there's one guy who's weak on that stage right now, or gal, it seems to be Joe Biden. He just can't keep it together. And, and, you know, 
I think the problem is he's just living in his a little bit of his old world. He's older. He, he is an older class of politician that I just don't know if they can play ball in this in this you know environment. But then we got the younger class of politicians. And one of the other things Henry Olson said about the debate last night and about the Democratic candidates, moreover, as well as the members of the House committees and the Senate and the way in which they responded to the president, he said, you know, I don't think that they are playing to softball Trump voters. They are not making any attempt to reach over to those that might have voted for the president that aren't leftists, aren't avowed socialists, and they don't really understand how to reach to them. You know, they, they, they basically have not departed from Hillary Clinton's playbook of, oh, let's just call them all deplorables because that's what they are. Because they won't get on board of our policy. The policy of we will scare them into voting for us. And if they don't, we will destroy them. But then comes along Andrew Yang. who might just be too nice to have what it takes to win this Democratic primary <laughs> debate cycle. I'm here with my wife, Evelyn, tonight. We have two young boys, Christopher and Damien. How many of you all are parents like us here in the room? So if you're a parent, you've had this thought. Maybe you've been afraid to express it. And it is this. Our kids are not all right. They're not all right because we're leaving them a future that is far darker than the lives that we have led as their parents. We are going through the greatest economic transformation in our country's history the fourth industrial revolution, and it is pushing more and more of our people to the side. We talk as if Donald Trump is the cause of all of our problems. He is not. He is a symptom, and we need to cure the disease. Now, my first move was not to run for president of the United States, because I am not insane. <laughs> my first move was to, was to go to D.C., talk to our leaders, and say, technology is ripping us apart. Immigrants are being scapegoated, our kids are being left behind, and the American dream that my parents came here to find is dying before our eyes. And the people in Washington, D.C. had nothing for this. They don't want to touch it. They don't want to talk about an issue they don't think they have a solution for. I'm not running for president because I've fantasized about being president. I'm running for president because, like many of you here in this room tonight, I'm a parent and a patriot, and I have seen the future that we're leaving for our kids, and it is not something I'm willing to accept. We need to create a new right. way forward for our people. If you want to join us in rewriting the rules All of the right. 21st century... So that's Andrew Yang in his closing statement last night in the Democratic primary debate. And I think he, at least there, he says something that's true that the other candidates just will not remit, admit. And that is, instead of attacking the president, it might be more obvious to say the following, that he is a symptom of the problems of the time. He is not the, the problem itself. He is not the, you know, the cause of the problem. And I think that's very true. And um, the problem with that, and I think the reason you won't see other candidates acknowledge that, is because in order to acknowledge that Donald Trump is not the symptom, or excuse me, is the symptom and not the, the problem itself, is to acknowledge that President Obama and, you know, the Democrats potentially could have played a role or did play some role in the rise of Donald Trump and the polarization that we saw that basically reached a high point in 2016 and a certain level of fakeness in politics, a certain level of corruption that made people so disgusted of the Hillary Clintons of the world. And speaking of Hillary Clinton, folks, 
Oh, boy. Our Clinton Foundation is not doing so well. <laughs> you know, they um, coming out their earnings and, and, you know, their donations are just dropping. Uh, apparently, she raised 10%. 10% of what she did in, in 2009 when she was Secretary of State. And uh, the numbers of fundraising from abroad are even worse than that. It's going really bad. Why could that be? Why does nobody see it valuable anymore? To donate to the uh, Hillary Clinton, or the Bill and Clinton, Hillary Clinton Foundation. You know, talk about corruption. But that can never be investigated. Of course not. And speaking of fundraising, it's not, you know, it's always indicative. Turn to the... Uh, the DNC and RNC, I usually I try not to talk about this stuff too much because I don't know how much it matters, you know, this early. But I think it really does demonstrate some interesting um, information about what's happening. Uh, in case you didn't know, it's it's kind of crazy right now. The um, Democrats uh, are really not doing so well when it comes to fundraising. They are basically seven million dollars. In debt right now. I think they, they raised, let's see here, they raised pretty much close to that, um, just a fraction of that. And uh, I believe it was, it was close to nine or $10 million, meanwhile, or $8 million, excuse me. The Republicans, and this is just in the month of October, the Republicans raised about $25 million in October. And this is the crazy part right now is that the Republicans, um, Reportedly, the RNC with the Trump campaign in terms of fundraising has raised uh, or has has raised over one hundred and fifty million dollars up until this point, and, and, and has as much um, close to that on hand. And, and you know, obviously, the Democrats don't have the advantage of of having a presidential candidate already chosen. But the numbers are not looking good. They they are still carrying around with them a bucket of debt. And it seems that nobody is too eager to donate to them, which is never, never a good sign. So we'll continue to follow all those stories with regards to impeachment and with regards to the Democratic presidential um, primary debate. And, uh, you know, as we close out here, I thought it would be interesting to share with you the fact that, uh, you know, Thanksgiving is approaching next week. So we got a couple episodes left here before we, we take our winter hiatus. Um, and one thing you got to be start be thinking about as we approach this time is how are you going to approach the uncomfortable conversations um, that you are going to have to have with your family, especially when those family members are not of the same political party as yourself. Um, and unfortunately, it seems more and more in America, there's less and less than that we can talk about that is um, not inherently related to, to politics in some way. I mean, even your favorite fast food restaurant, Chick-fil-A, if you, if you like them, is coming under attack. What a story we saw this week there where, you know, they finally decided they're no longer to donate to Salvation Army. Uh, so it appears even talking about Salvation Army or going to Salvation Army or supporting Salvation Army is considered a political gesture in our world today. So what are the things that you can talk about with your family? That's something we're going to work on and think about. Submit what you think online to American View WRFH, where uh, Hillsdale meets the nation on our Facebook page. You can reach out to me at Ben underscore D-I-E-T-D. 
and give us some ideas on that front. We're curious to hear all the things you can do to you know avoid um, talking about politics. It's kind of funny because uh, you know it just it seems so hard. It, it seems like music. You know, you got Kanye West now, of course. That's kind of been interpreted as, as political. Most of the left-leaning stars, it seems, um, feel that way as well. Sports, well, you can't talk about football as long as you don't mention Colin Kaepernick, at least. Um, the NBA, maybe Hong Kong, something you can agree on. Everybody can kind of, you know, criticize the the head of the NBA for their misdoings there. But sports, you know, proves plot problematic. Hollywood, what a disaster there. I feel like every single time I turn on a new series of my favorite TV show, I'm just disappointed with how much more political has gotten from the last season and just keeps on going down a darker and darker road. So that that's kind of out. Food or you know, there's an article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday about jeans and consumer products that apparently the the companies at which people shop um, are the way people are buying things becoming much more divisive. So get this. If you are a Republican, you are much more likely to buy your jeans from Wrangler. And if you are a Democrat, you are much more likely to buy your jeans from Levi. Um, That's the blue jean company and the red jean company, apparently, as we're told. Um, So even your jeans. So, you know, beware of where you shop on Black Friday for your family members. You don't want to risk offending them. Um, If you buy the wrong person Patagonia, if you buy... uh, I don't know, the wrong person, Starbucks coffee, or um, bring Chick-fil-A to, to the wrong place. can get you in trouble. Uh, you know, where does this all lead? We will, we will see. So it's been a pleasure talking to you today on American View, WRFH. Um, and we're going to continue to follow impeachment. Next week, we, or before we head off to break, we do hope to speak to Dr. B. We're going to continue our Literature Speaks segments. Um, and we're going to talk about all of that. Uh, you know, I think the next big topic we're going to talk about are Shakespeare's history plays, how those relate to the politics we have today, and what they offer to teach us about statesmanship. If you like any of those segments, please let us know online at American View, WRFH, on our Facebook page. Um, or you can check us out as well on SoundCloud or Spotify. Um, we would love to hear what you have to say. So with that, we want to thank you to, for listening to this edition of American View. We'll have more information coming to you um, before fall, next week, before we hit winter break, not fall break. Seasons are changing fast here. It's been a pleasure. Be sure to check out our full interview with Henry Olson we did earlier this segment, if you're just joining us now, online. Thanks for listening. I'm Ben Dietrich, and this has been American View, where Hillsdale meets the nation. Brought to you by our producer, Andrew Nell, and all the rest of us here at Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Have a great morning.